Good morning. It's like old times. It's always good to be, to be back at Calvary. And I love this pulpit. I've preached at a lot of different churches. This pulpit, I mean, it's got so much room. I have churches that have these little pulpits. I don't know what to do with my Bible after I'm done reading the scriptures. You got a place. Oh, no, you don't have that. I thought there was a place there to put it. Well, anyways, there's lots of room up here. And uh, I like this pulpit a lot. It's always good to be back with you. And uh, I want to uh, set the tone for my message this morning <clears throat> by telling you about a, uh, an interview that I heard this past week with two high school age brothers from Canada. Maybe you've read about them in the news. They uh, are evangelical Christians. They were raised in an evangelical home, uh, but because of their faith, they uh, have been persecuted a great deal, but they've refused to take any other stand except their stand on the scriptures. Uh, they refuse to say that there is more than two genders based on what Jesus said in the Gospels, that God created them, male and female. They have been suspended from school. They've been arrested. Uh, they were at a, a, a Christian gathering one time out in public, and BLM showed up, cut one of the boys on the forehead with a knife. So they've been through a lot. And their parents, though, are the same. Their parents are in the, uh, have been for a long time in the Canadian school system. And they were just one year away from collecting their pension, retiring, and they refused to teach that there are more than two genders based on the scriptures. And they lost their jobs and they lost their pension. And the interviewer asked these boys, why do you do this? <clears throat> and they said, because everything has a price. Freedom has a price, righteousness has a price, and I want to add to that that we oftentimes say salvation is free, and that's true. Jesus paid the price, but we do pay a price for following Jesus. We pay a price for living out our salvation. So now my scripture text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. beginning at verse 6 to 13. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Paulus for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? as if you did not receive it. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles at last of all, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 
and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for every portion of your word, for what you have for us this morning. I pray, Father, you would uh, take my feeble attempt at presenting your word and multiply it and use it to your purposes in the heart of each person here, each person that you know by name and intimately, and you know their need. Whatever application you have for them, I pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit that you would, would use this message to edify and to mold and shape in the image of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. When I was a uh, boy, about 10 or 12 years old, I, uh, I had my idol, I had the person that I wanted to be most like, and uh, he was a, a movie star, and some of you old fellows might know who I'm talking about. His name was Steve Reeves. Uh, I never saw a more perfect specimen of the male physique than Steve Reeves. Uh, he was Mr. America, Mr. Universe, all kinds of other misters, and because of that, he played starring roles in movies based on various Greek myths like Hercules, Hercules Unchained, uh, Unchained Goliath and the Barbarians, the Giant of Marathon, and he was a, a model of the perfect physical symmetry of a man, and it was all natural, not like you see some of the bodybuilders today, it's quite ugly, they have so many knots and veins showing. His was all natural, and he was a beautiful specimen of a man to look at. Diet and hard training in the gym. No steroids, no synthetic drugs. He was a terrible actor, but people didn't go to the movies to see his acting. They went to see his muscles, especially when he's in situations where it demanded that he uh, you know, flex all of his muscles. One time he was uh, hooked up to a horse on e either end. They were going to pull him apart, and he was able to pull those horses back. But boy, I'll tell you, just to be able to look at him, and my wife will tell you today, I put YouTube videos on, and I still like to look at Steve Reeves. But God didn't want me, as you can tell. He didn't want me to be like Steve Reeves. He gave me a skinny, puny little frame so that no matter how hard I work at it, I could never be like my childhood hero, and I tried. Many times throughout history, the church has been like me with Steve Reeves, but also like me, the church hasn't been given that kind of frame. The frame that the church has been given is in 1 Corinthians 1.26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The church needs to embrace that and not try to be what she is not not try to be admired and impressed or impressive. The church needs to be foolish, 
as foolish as God wants her to be, she needs to relish the mockery and the disdain of the world. Not that the church is weak. She's stronger than the world. But her strength is in her weakness, because in her weakness she has to rely on the power of God. When I am weak, says Paul, then I am strong. There were false teachers in the church at Corinth who were telling the congregation that Paul and the other apostles were not to be listened to because they weren't successful by the world's standards. They weren't impressive. They didn't perform dazzling miracles. They didn't speak with eloquence and sophistication. They didn't have anything novel or creative to say. And so they were not to be respected. The Corinthian church was driven by the model of the world and the culture around them, not the model of Christ. It was a model of pride, superiority, competition, conflict. And what was it, though, as we stop and think about it, that defined the ministry of Jesus? It was the cross, the foolishness of the cross. That, that, that cross was an instrument of execution that was reserved for the scum of Roman society. It was meant to embarrass, to demoralize, degrade, intimidate. And in Jewish society, being hung on a tree was also reserved for the scum of the culture and the society. Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23 says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so God brought Israel into the land not to curse them, but to bless them. And so the body of a man who was cursed for committing a crime that was punishable by death would be taken down on the same day that he was put to death so that the curse would not remain on the land of Israel's inheritance. God put Jesus under a curse for our sin. And there's a sense in which Jesus was truly cursed by God in our place. And that man in Deuteronomy who committed a crime worthy of death, that man, according to the scriptures, that's you and me. Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so do you wanna be saved by God by being good? Then the Bible says you have to be good all the way, flawlessly, because God is perfect. He can't let heaven be contaminated with any imperfection. If I were to put it in athletic terms, if you're a swimmer, you have to win every single race for the rest of your life. You can never come in second. If you're in a spelling bee, you have to spell every word right for the rest of your life. You can't make one mistake of one letter. You can never come in second on that. If you're doing math, you're not allowed to have an eraser, no second chances. You have to get every problem right without mistakes. 
In keeping God's law, you can never have a bad thought or desire about anyone else. All of your speech has to be perfect toward everyone that you meet. And when it comes to God, you have to think lovingly about God all the time. Your heart has to be in a constant posture of worship, constantly connected to God. That's what scripture teaches. And why? Because God is holy and he can't let anything into heaven that's not like him. And so Paul goes on to say, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law, he said, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So do you get that? Either live by faith in God's promise to save you by the power of the life and death of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, who kept the law perfectly on your behalf, both in his thoughts and in his behavior and all the attitudes of his heart, or you try to live up to the demands of God's laws yourself with perfection. And so David in Psalm 51 said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I was dead on arrival. It's like entering a turtle in a race, a horse race at the Kentucky Derby. And the minute that gate opens, he's lost. He lost the race, not just because he's slow, but because he's disqualified by being a turtle instead of a horse. And we're disqualified for God's kingdom by being sinners rather than saints from the beginning, and we need to be born again. We need to be transformed from turtles into horses. You either live by God's mercy towards you for failing to live up to his perfect standards, or you try to do it yourself, and you'll never be able to do that yourself. You're a turtle in a horse race. But the greatest news in the world is this. As Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so that man on the tree, you and me, Jesus said, no, I'll take that person's curse. Put me on that tree and let him or her go. That's one sense in which Jesus was cursed, cursed by God in our place. But there's another sense in which Jesus was cursed. He was unjustly cursed by the world. We often think of curses as God's domain, but the world has its own form of curses. Jesus was cursed by the Romans and by the Jews. And when he calls us to take up our crosses and follow him, he's not calling us to take up the cross of the curse of God that we deserve, but he endured in our place. He's talking about the cross of the world's curse that they put on him and will put on us because we follow him. And that's the sense in which Jesus calls you and me to join him in that curse. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were born of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so God's curse is because we don't conform to God's perfect, holy, and righteous ways. Jesus took that curse for all who put their faith in what he did. The world's curse is because we don't conform to the world's prideful, prideful and devious and competitive ways. And the question for you and me is, which curse do I want? Each curse comes with a blessing. If you're outside of Christ, 
and therefore under the curse of God, you get the blessing of the world. If you're under the curse of the world because you belong to God, then you have the blessing of God. And the Beatitudes spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So which blessing do I want? Which curse do I want? And you and I can't live in this world without some form of a curse or some form of a blessing, either from God or the world. The two are mutually exclusive. And Paul in this passage in 1 Corinthians 4 says the apostles are definitely under the curse of the world. He says that they're like men sentenced to death, fools for the sake of Christ, weak, held in disrepute, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, the scum of the world and the garbage, the worst of the worst of all things. And when he says they're like men sentenced to death, what he's referring to is uh, captives who were led in chains in a parade. When a Roman general would conquer uh, the enemy in a a far-off land, when he came back, he would bring all his captives with him. And there was a day set aside when they would go through the streets in a parade and they would applaud this general and all of his captives were walking behind him naked through the city streets in disgrace. And at the end of the parade, the captives were either sold into slavery or they were killed. That was what the apostles were like. And keep that in mind, because right now we're talking about a parade. Then we're going to get to the Colosseum. The church at Corinth was driven by pride, by boasting, by self-righteousness. And they broke up into factions and camps. One group says, we have a better understanding of Christianity because we're followers of Apollos. And if you're not with us, then you're not as spiritual as we are. And another group said, no, Peter is the one who confessed that Christ was the son of God, not Apollos. Apollos wasn't among the original 12 disciples, neither was Paul. And yet another group said, but Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had a later encounter with Jesus, so his teachings are more fresh, more up to date. So be with our group or be gone. And they created the same divisions with the rich looking down on the poor. Sexual immorality was excused or condoned because that was an essential part of the Corinthian culture. The church and the surrounding culture looked exactly the same. The church sometimes becomes the arm of the culture or the arm of the government. And the pride of Corinth soon infected many churches throughout history. Being a Christian was synonymous with being respectable. You belong to the first Methodist church, the first Baptist church, the first Presbyterian church, or to keep up with many trends today, the church of miracles, the church where everything is possible, the liquid church, the waterfall church, the church where dreams come true. And who belonged to those churches? by respectable people, of course, the bank president, the mayor, members of the town council, owners of the largest and most successful businesses in town, they wouldn't be seen associating with anyone that wasn't successful. Going back to the days of James, in the New Testament churches, they were segregated. Rich were given the best seats, the poor, 
and the slaves were made to stand or to sit on the floor. And the same was true in many churches up to and after the Civil War in this country. No wonder, no wonder the hippies of the 60s rejected the church. And they put on the faded jeans, the grunge shirts, and they saw the establishment as something they did not want to be a part of. And the church was part of that establishment. They thought they were rejecting Christianity when they were really rejecting the use of Christianity to promote selfish goals. And every time church sacrifices humility for pride, trying to be strong, trying to be respectable, to be liked, to be accepted, the church ceases to be the church of Christ. The defining moment of Jesus Christ, the moment he came for was the cross. He is meaningless without the cross. You take the cross away along with its shame and disgrace, the Christian faith disappears. Do you and I understand that the cross is important not only for salvation, but also for living? We're to be walking cross carriers. We're not only to come to the cross of Christ to be saved, but we are each given crosses to carry with us on a daily basis. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Not take up the cross in order to be saved, and once saved you can put it down and you can just skate into the celestial kingdom enjoying all of your favorite sins. Take up the cross when you're insulted. Take up the cross when you're misunderstood. Take up the cross when you're overlooked. Take up the cross when you are tempted. And maybe what Jesus meant was that following them involved uh, following him involves a series of lifting up that heavy cross and putting it on your shoulders by repeated difficult decisions undergirded by prayer. Lord, help me to take up my cross in this situation because I'm tempted to put it aside and to put on a crown. And that, could that be what the Bible means when it commands us to humble ourselves, not just once, but over and over and over again? You're in training for humility. So Paul gives us a model in the relationship between himself and Apollo. He says in verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. And that's what living the Christian life is, daily, moment-by-moment moment application. And one of the serious problems of pride when it comes to Scripture is its void of application. At every point where I fail to apply Scripture to my life is the point that pride says, you're above that. You don't need that. It will ruin your fun. It'll invite ridicule. It'll ruin the image you want others to have of you. You might even lose that relationship that's so important to you. You don't want to imply that. Just pay lip service to it. Get people to believe that you believe it. And Paul exhibited his Christ-like humility by applying all the scriptures he had referred to in previous verses. His application of scripture to himself went like this. Paul had his gifts and role in the lives of the Christians at uh, Corinth, and Apollos had his, and one wasn't better than the other. Paul and Apollos confirmed and they complimented one another. They didn't quibble and fight with one another or try to outdo one another, and God has an order and a plan to the gifts he gives to the church. Paul didn't try to be like Apollos, and Apollos didn't try to be like Paul. Paul was Paul, Apollos was Apollos, because that's the way God made them. 
and they stayed in that role. And their relationship was the model for the Corinthians. Most of you here are not called to stand up in front of people Sunday after Sunday and preach a sermon, except your pastor and those who might fulfill the pulpit for him. But everyone in here is called to preach a sermon of modeling your relationship with others in here. Paul wasn't an eloquent preacher with his lips, but he was an eloquent preacher with his life, with Apollos and with the lives of others. He modeled humility, and they both modeled humility, and they didn't try to compete with one another for recognition or popularity. The church has offices. There are offices of the pastor, and as a teaching elder, the ruling elders, the deacons. But imagine if there was an office of modeling, not modeling your clothes or your hairstyle or your jewelry, but modeling Christ-likeness. Imagine if the session here met with you and said, we are appointing you to the office of modeling Christ-like behavior, and we're going to let everybody in the church know that you are the model that they're to look at for what it means to follow Christ. A lot of pressure. Like Paul said, though, be imitators of me. And when you walk in on Sunday mornings, when you attend church functions, people are going to be looking at you to see what it is like to live like Christ. For instance, if you don't get the recognition you think that you should get for some work you perform in the church, instead of walking off in a huff or going off to another church, you take comfort in simply knowing God knows. That's all that's important. If someone holds you accountable for a sin, instead of getting defensive and turning the tables on the other person by saying, but what about your sins? You seriously look at yourself and you bring it before the Lord. Most likely there's some truth in what that person is saying. He says that, doesn't he, in verses 12 and 13. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. The truth is we're all models of what it means to follow Christ, some better than others because we're at different levels of maturity. But all of this is to be practiced in the church by us before we go out into the world. There are churches that practice foot washing as a reminder of the role of servant that we're called to fulfill to each other. Imagine if we practiced cross-carrying. We'd have to expand this auditorium, but around Good Friday every year, you know, you often see people carrying a cross to reenact what Jesus did when he carried his cross. So imagine if each had a cross fitted for each of us, tailor-made so it's not too heavy, not too light, waiting for us at the door at the church every Sunday morning, and we get our cross, and we carry it into the worship service. What I'm saying is that the humility that it takes to be willing to be the scum of the world, mocked and derided and ridiculed, and even worse, possibly jailed or executed, is the humility we've already cultivated in our relationship with one another. This is, as it were, the petri dish of learning humility. Don't go beyond what is written, he says in verse 6. What does he mean by that? He's referring to a teacher writing out letters of the alphabet, and then a child would trace over those letters in order to learn how to write. We're to live in a way that traces over the truths of Scripture so that others can see God's word written in our lives. 
Paul and Apollos modeled that behavior, and the Corinthians were to follow that model. So is your life, as best as you can, one that traces over the teachings of Scripture so that others may see it and model it in turn in their lives? Is there someone you look at as a model for your life? Because we're both to be and to look at others as models. Philippians 3, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then Paul uses sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And Stoic philosophy taught that the wise person was considered to be like a king. He could do whatever he wanted. And in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul quotes the philosophy they were living by when it says, all things are lawful for us or for me. And that's how they felt, that they could do whatever they wanted, that being a Christian gave them a license to be a law unto themselves. And sometimes a poor person wanted to be an artist, and so they depended on a rich person to support them. And that rich person was often referred to by the person being sponsored as a king. And some of the church were rich, and it appears they felt that their wealth made them superior to others in the church. And so Paul is saying, if this is what you think of yourselves, then what do you think of us apostles? We must be an embarrassment to you. You claim to be triumphant. You claim to be kings. You look for the greatest honors among yourselves. This is what Christianity is to you. It's a path to worldly success and prestige. So what does that mean for us apostles, the ones who brought you the gospel, who sacrificed our comforts and risked our lives, the ones treated as the scum of the world by the world? So in giving, instead of giving apostles crowns to wear, God determined that they would suffer like Christ and be indistinguishable from the poor and the despised of the world. So now we get to the main point. He uses the setting. Remember, we were in the parade. He used the, the, the setting of those condemned to die in the arena. We're gone from a parade of captives and slaves to the arena in the Colosseum. And notice he says in verse 9, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And if you put verses 8 and 9 together, you have the picture of a stadium. The well-to-do in verse 8, the nobles, the kings, the respectable people are in the stands and they're waiting to be entertained by the mockery and the torture and the death of those down in the arena. Those in verse 9 are down in the arena during the gladiatorial games who are going to be killed by the gladiators. And they're waiting for the release of the wild animals to tear their flesh apart while the crowds in the stands are cheering. But Paul takes it down one more notch, as low as he can go. He goes from apostles being treated as fools, weak, hungry, homeless, laboring with our hands, which was undignified, slandered and persecuted, to those apostles being nothing but the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Scum of the world. 
You want to know what scum of the world means? You go into our backyard. If my wife and I haven't had a chance to pick up after our dogs after a few days, you'll know what scum of the world is. He's talking about the scrapings that people took off the bottom of their shoes after they would walk through the streets of the city. The apostles are nothing more than the scrapings off of people's shoes to the world. And in that way, they're no different than Christ. By inference, he's asking those puffed up in the church, with whom are you identifying? Are you identifying with those in the stands or those in the arena? The ones in the stands are those who shouted, crucify him at the trial of Jesus. They're the ones who said, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus was down in the arena, and that's where the apostles were, down in the arena. And now more than ever before in the history of our country, in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel, each of us needs to ask him or herself, where in the stadium am I willing to be? In the stands, are the popcorn and the ice cream and the hot dogs and the ice cold beer, but down in the arena, down in the arena is the curse of the world, the humiliation and the threats and the thirst and the deprivation, the pain and the death. But there's also Christ. Christ is where the suffering is. And the early Christians had nothing but fellowship with God and his son Jesus Christ when they were led into that arena. And yes, the crowds were cheering, but they were cheering for their death. They had nothing but fellowship with God when they were crucified under Nero. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had nothing but fellowship with God when he was led naked to the gallows. And we can't have that willingness to be treated with contempt and disdain by the world if we're not convinced that we have something far better, far more satisfying, far more enduring than anything else that this world has to offer. We need the mind of Moses in Hebrews 11 who despised the title of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin or the approval of this world. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Paul considered anything this world ha had to offer him as scum, as rubbish, as dung, as waste, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see the exchange there. The world considers you scum for following Christ, and you consider everything the world has to offer in place of Christ as dung and rubbish. And so the feeling is mutual. Let me just close with something I've often asked people who came to me for my divine wisdom regarding a difficult choice that they had to make. Something, let's say, like getting a dog. I'm not sure if I should get a dog. Something like, you know, it, it, it's going to mean I can't go away as easily as I, as I can now. It means vet bills and food, maybe having to get out of the house and walk it even in really cold weather. I have to think of dog hair and shedding. And so a question I always ask them in a situation like that, is it worth it? It has to be worth it to you. You have to conclude that the benefits far outweigh the inconveniences and the cost. And if it's not, then don't do it. 
And that's true of a lot of choices that differentiate one group of people from another. For some, whatever the choice is, it's worth it. For others, it's not. And that was a challenge Jesus gave to everyone who thought about following him. The rich young ruler, sell everything you have, come and follow me. Nope, wasn't worth it. He went away sad. The parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, where people who were, were invited were people of financial means, and so they made excuses for not coming, and the owner of the banquet said, go out and invite people who have nothing to lose. The poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, people for whom the kingdom of God is worth it compared to what this world has to offer. And Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus, in a nutshell, says to Peter, yes, and God will make it more than worth it. There's nothing you lose or give up in this world for the sake of God's kingdom that he won't compensate you for far beyond your wildest dreams. So I ask you this morning, is it worth it for you to be considered by this world to be nothing but the scrapings from the bottom of their shoes? Because that's the way we Christians are becoming increasingly in this culture. Paul in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. In 2 Corinthians 4, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There isn't a better investment in this life that you can invest in that will pay greater returns than the kingdom of God. Serving God, worshiping God, even if it means bringing the wrath and the disdain and the mockery and cruelty of this world down on you. That's a statement of fact. But whether or not you and I can do it is only determined when we're put in given situations where we have to make that choice and ask ourselves, do I really believe it's worth it? Let's pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank you for giving us a kingdom and inheritance that will last forever. Eternal life means not just a length of time, but a relationship with you of abundance and quality. And we thank you, Lord, that we can have that to look forward to for this world has nothing to offer us that's worth giving up our own souls for. So we pray that you would help us to be such a people, that we are willing to identify with those down in the arena where Christ is, instead of those up in the bleachers. Through his name we pray. Amen.